um, Sunday, August 9th, 2009. Our message this morning is called Sticks and Bones. Sticks and Bones. So if you will turn to Genesis 50, we'll hop right in the Word. Yeah. All right. Brother's fast. Brother is fair. Saints, we've seen a lot of amazing things. We've seen cancer healed. We've seen little boys grow ribs where they had no ribs. We've seen storefronts turn into churches and men's lives changed. But for all the good things that we see, it is a whole lot easier to hang on to the things that you have not yet seen, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, don't we have a way of going, yeah, God, you did that, now it's great, but he'd never given us a reason to doubt him. He's not. His word is chronicles of story after story of real men and women who trusted him and were not put to shame. I want to encourage you that the king of the universe is attentive to your life. The Psalms say that he watches all mankind and considers everything that they did. Perhaps the difficult situations that we've been put in are just a chance for us to be squeezed a little bit to see how sincere our trust in him really is. It's not really trust if it's not hard to do things. I wanted to share with you this morning a little bit about Joseph's bones. You know Joseph, the patriarch Joseph? Actually, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are called the patriarchs, and this is uh, fourth from Abraham. This is Joseph, Jacob's son. And starting in 50, Genesis 50, starting in 19. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Before we move past that, Joseph's just had a pretty rough 17 years. Uh, as a young man, he receives vision, he receives promise, and his own brothers sell him out, throw him in a hole. He gets accused falsely of rape. People keep forgetting him in prison. I like to use Joseph as an example because I've seen some pretty sad things in ministry, horrible things that have been done to human beings. But I've not met very many Josephs in my life, nobody that really compares with that kind of betrayal, heartache. But Joseph, towards the end, had hope that he started with in the beginning. And here, in the very middle of his life, as the promises of God are just starting to show some promise, he says, what you intended to harm me God intended for my good. Psalm 105.17 says that God sent Joseph to Egypt. Am I the only one scratches my head when you read a sentence like that? If uh, somebody stole Gabe's car tomorrow, and then uh, he went to work and he lost his job, and then he went from there to whoever his closest friends are. Let's for argument's sake say that's Darren. And Darren accuses him of something false and has him thrown in jail. And then 10 years pass, and he gets out, and he's in Alabama preaching somewhere. Would you say God sent him there? I mean, because this is kind of what that's like. Our king will use the good, the bad, and the ugly to advance his will in your life. You need to get hold of a concept. Nobody else's disobedience will affect you being in God's will. It cannot. You can say, well, that person was supposed to be my spouse, and they didn't. It doesn't matter. 
Nobody else can affect God's will in your life. Psalm 138.8 says that God will perform His purpose for me. I just throw something out there on the spouse thing. If God wasn't in the business of creating new creatures all of the time, you might be hopeless. There might be only one out there. But if my wife doesn't like the husband she has today, I can be a new husband tomorrow. We serve a God who does amazing, amazing things. Don't reason him out. None of that is our message, though. Start with me in verse 22. Joseph stayed in Egypt along with all his father's family. He lived 110 years and saw the third generation of Ephraim's children. Also, the children of Makur, the sons of Manasseh, were placed at birth on Joseph's knees. I don't have time to teach on this subject today, but if you've ever wondered how a curse can go to the third and fourth generation, but a blessing to a thousand, and the scripture says that, you almost never have more than four generations of people alive in one house at one time. And what a father does, what a mother does, affects children. And what those children do will affect their children. There's no question about that. This is not something that is mystical. If you grew up in a family full of alcoholics, you might have a problem with alcohol. There's nothing mystical about that. When there is no obedience, it brings a curse. But the reverse is also true, and it lasts a thousand generations, which is a way to say it lasts forever. Joseph's obedience shows up in his children's 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 life, and he gets a chance to see three generations from his own son, four generations from him, put in his lap, and he gets to pray for them. What an amazing blessing. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the sons of Israel swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. What an incredibly odd request. You think it's a little weird when you go to somebody's house and they have an urn? Doesn't that feel just a little creepy? Yeah. What if... Not at all. I understand that's cool. But what if on the day you get into Egypt, somebody says 400 years from now, think about that, that's longer than our country has been existent. I want you to carry my bones out of this place when you leave. Doesn't that seem like a little bit of an odd request? But we need to remember that this request is being made for a reason. The great-grandfather right? Great-grandfather, Abraham, had received promises that weren't fulfilled in his lifetime. You remember he was told, you will inherit this land with your descendants and rule it forever? Abraham didn't get all that land. I mean, he walked around it, he traveled like a stranger, but he didn't get it all and not with his descendants, and he certainly wasn't ruling it forever. His bones were somewhere. Jacob was told very similar things. So was Isaac, and so was Joseph. These men all that are considered the founders and fathers of our faith were told things that did not even come to pass in their lifetime. But those dry bones, those dry bones meant that there was still hope. This is a symbol that Joseph believed even if it were 400 years after his death, his efforts had ended, his vision had ended, his power to make it happen had ended, God was still able to make it 
happen. How many promises in your life are there that you have strived to see happen? You have worked. At times you fought and kicked and become angry when others didn't see it or didn't recognize it or didn't participate. I wonder how many dry bones we carry around. Turn with me to Acts 26. We're going to come back to bones in a minute. Acts 26, let's start in verse 2. King Agrippa, I began, let's see, King Agrippa, I considered myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews, meaning Jewish leadership, because both men speaking are Jews. And especially so because you are well acquainted with the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Jews all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child. From the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem, they have known me for a long time and can testify if they're willing that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I live as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope and what God has promised our fathers. When a Jew says our fathers, he does mean everybody that went before him, but most specifically, Father Abraham, Father Isaac, and Father Jacob. These men were all promised things that were bigger than they could see in their lifetime. And Paul, all of these centuries later, at this time, 21 centuries later, was still clinging to that hope. And listen to what he says. This is the promise the 12 tribes, that's all of Israel, are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. O king, it is because of this hope that the Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I want to ask you, why would we consider it incredible that God raises the dead? We say, well, no, well, we know he can raise the dead. I mean, Jesus rose. But how many of your hopes and dreams have been crushed to the point where you think your marriage is dead and cannot be healed? How about your relationship with your children or an aunt or an uncle? He said, but... It's different. I mean, God doesn't violate their free will. No one a stop sign doesn't violate your free will. But God knows how to put things in your life that will steer you in certain directions. I can promise that. I wonder how many times we've dug up in doubt those seeds of prayer we've sown in faith. Mm -hmm. Lord, I believe you can save them. That Eric is such a wicked, horrible, immoral guy, but you can save him. You can save him. I know you can do it. You can do it. And that lasted all of about a week. And then it rained and you got tired and a leaf blew in the window. It landed on your foot. And now God, uh, he can't do it. The hope of Israel was that God raises the dead to the point where Paul didn't think anybody should be surprised by that. What is it that has discouraged you in your faith? They had received visions. They had received promises. They had received hope. And they believed that it would take a resurrection to bring them about. This is why Abraham was willing to offer Isaac on the mountain. Is your vision, promise, hope, dead? Do you despair over some situation in your life to the point where you can't think about it or it makes you nauseous or brings tears to your eyes? There's a time period in my life when I couldn't drive into a certain town without being flooded with all of the horrible memories of things that happened there. A lot of good things happen in that town too, but it's funny how the devil has a way of magnifying that which is bad. And you think, is there no hope 
in those situations. Turn with me to John 5. I'm going to read you a scripture maybe a little different way than you're used to hearing it. In John 5, start with me in uh, verse 24. Y'all awake this morning? Yeah. yeah. Right in here. John is awake. That's good. Good. I'm glad you're listening. John 5, 24. I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. I tell you the truth. A time is coming. Let's stop there. None of us have a problem believing. I mean, I'm assuming you don't have a problem if you're in this church. Coming in here and believing that there will be a resurrection. Every Easter, along with little chocolate bunnies, pastors talk about it everywhere. Right? We don't have a problem believing that in the future there will be a resurrection. And most don't have a problem believing that Jesus raised from the dead. I want you to hear very closely what he says, though. He doesn't just say a time is coming. He says, and has now come. So let me ask you a question. If there is a situation in your life in which you feel like it is dead, there is no hope. What do we do with the scripture that says, when they hear the word of God, there is a time coming and that has now come when they will live. What do you do with that? Is the problem that the other person just won't be obedient? Is the problem that my family has just gone to hell in a handbasket and all of them are sinful? Is that really the problem? Or is the problem that you haven't heard God's word that you can stand on that will bring you life? It's so much easier to turn on Fox News. It's so much easier to just go listen to a radio, to go be entertained somewhere. Every problem we have, every problem, is solved in God's Word. Let's read this one more time. I tell you the truth, everyone who hears my Word and believes Him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. That's not the end of a matter. That is every day. You will not be condemned. The idea of eternal life for us, we need to understand, feels differently to the audience that this was written to. When we think of eternal life, what one word comes to people's mind? Heaven. That's nowhere in their view. Not even close. To them, eternal life was not dying. Being in a resurrected body upon the earth, not dying. Inheriting the promises. But aside from that, listen to what he goes on to say. He has crossed over from death to life. In Israel, when they came out of Egypt, uh, before they went into the promised land and after they got into the promised land, they did something that God ordained called a census. And when you take a census in Israel, what we would do is we would take... I don't know why always more people sit on this side of the room. The right side. Don't know what that says about... It's just a matter of perspective, right? But you would take everybody from one side of the room, put them on the other. That would be considered death. Everybody starts off in death in a census in Israel. And when a price is paid for you, a price of silver, redemption, you cross over from death into the number of the sons of Israel, princes with God, life. So when Jesus is speaking these words and he's saying, if you will believe me, you have crossed from death into life, he's saying, I am paying, I am redeeming, I am doing what it takes to cause you to be numbered with those that are God's. 
Now, how many of you have ever heard or thought, well, when we get to heaven, there won't be any problems? He said, if you believe his word now, if you believe his word now, you have eternal life. Does that mean that the problems go away? No, it just means that there is not a single problem, not one, not anywhere, that hearing his word on the subject will not fix. Now, one of the ways that he might fix it is he might make you hard as stone so that you can deal with it. He might fix it by raising somebody from the dead. He might fix it by striking someone dead. Well, you don't hear that from a pulpit lot. You don't have to say, well, that's just an Old Testament God. Read the book of Acts. I don't think so. By the way, the Old Testament God and the New Testament God, same God. There is no Old and New Testament. There is one revelation of God from Genesis to Revelation, period. It's one contiguous book, all 66. The divisions were created so that we could segment it and decide what does and doesn't apply. What gave any man the right to decide that something did not apply? This is God's revelation to mankind. I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. I tell you the truth, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Saints, there is a time where we hear his voice and we live. Now the truth is it happens many times. When you got born again, if you got born again, what was supposed to happen, the only way into the kingdom, the only way to cross from death to life, is you had to have a personal revelation that could only come from the voice of the Son of God. If you just agreed with the preacher, if you just squeezed somebody's hand and prayed and had a warm, fuzzy experience, that's not enough. But when he speaks to you, when he ministers to your heart in a way that you have no doubt it was him, It brings life every time. You ever wondered why hundreds of thousands of people rush an altar in the great healing evangelist movement? Where are those people a week later? I've lived long enough to watch people healed in our church that don't even come back. And it's always been this way. Our problem is that we have not had the word revealed to us so that we can stand on it. When God himself has said, you will do this or you will not do that you can stand on it and even if you see that your body is dying and the promise has not come about you can say you know what god still said it so you better carry my bones with you if you want to see the promise come about Mm -hmm. joseph saying carry my bones out was a way of saying oh it's not going to happen during this lifetime but our god is going to raise me and it will surely happen the faith that we have is founded on the idea that what God has said to you, a promise, a hope, a covenant, whatever it may be, he is able to perform even if it takes a resurrection from the dead to do it. Not just Jesus, not just you one day, not just you at salvation, but over and over and over as you need him. I tell you the truth, I have a lot of relationships that he has breathed resurrection life into many times because my own sinful ways kill it. Am I the only one in the room that's ever experienced that? No. Am I the only one that loves people and can alienate them all at the same time? Yeah. I think I'm doing it now. <laughs> well, good. We're brothers, you and I, then. Uh, turn with me to 2 Corinthians 1. There will be a resurrection in the future. 
but there can be one right now as well. Your life, your calling, your hope does not have to remain dead. Amen. There. Thank God, amen. Amen to that. I don't want to do it, but if I ask you to close your eyes, is there no area of your life that you wish God would breathe life into? Mm -hmm. Is there no area that you feel like, God, if I just had those years back, I just had that one sentence back. This message is for you. And that's got to be every person in this room. Second Corinthians 1. Let's start in verse 8. We do not want you to be uninformed. That's a nice way to say don't be stupid. <laughs> Brothers, about the hardships we suffered. In the providence of Asia, we were under great pressure far beyond our ability to endure. Do you think Paul had the ability to endure some serious trials? Yeah. So what do you think it is when he says it was far beyond his ability to endure? Well, I'll give you a hint. I know one thing happened to him in the providence of Asia. Some people first said that he was a god. And then when he tore his clothes and said, I'm not a god, they threw rocks at him until everybody thought he was dead and drug him outside town. Yeah. Would you say that's beyond your ability to endure? Yeah. The scripture doesn't say what happened. Doesn't say he died, doesn't say anything else. It just says the brother stood around him and he got up. <laughs> How about that? Saints, let's be brothers that stand around each other. Let's get up. Far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. We despaired even of life. We're talking about the guy that saw Jesus in an open vision, knocked to the ground, scales on his eyes. Fourteen years in Arabia, getting more revelation. This, uh, this man starting his ministry speaks a word and sees people blinded. What could cause him to despair even of life? Think about that. But the king that we serve puts us through a refining process that I have been preaching about a lot. Listen to why he says this happens. But this happened, despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts we felt the sentence of death. But this happened, that we might not rely on ourselves. You wouldn't think that would be such a hard thing to do, not rely on yourself. But if you're not relying on yourself, doesn't that bring to mind kind of an awkward saying? Well, then who do I rely on? We know the church answer, the right answer. You go ask the kids, who do we rely on? What are they going to say? Jesus, because they're in Sunday school. But when you can't pay your mortgage, and you say, well, don't rely on yourself, what does that mean? Am I the only one been there? When your kid can't breathe, and you're driving down the road to the emergency room, right? Do I not rely on myself? That means I don't drive faster? I mean, what does that mean? Does it mean I don't try CPR? It means that God himself has a way of getting you into a position that goes way beyond anything that you could endure, way beyond anything that you could perform, so that when he comes through for you, you can see that it was him and no other. Amen. If we built this ministry on the strength of our personality, then it would be our ministry. If despite our very best efforts, some come, some go, some get healed, some don't get healed, all of those things. You know who it depends upon? God. 
And that's just the way that he wants it. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. How bad is your situation? Is there anybody in here whose heart is not beating? How bad is your situation? Because God raises the dead. I don't think anybody in here is experiencing that at the moment, huh? Yes? He has delivered us from such deadly peril, and he will deliver us. He has, and he will. I want you to begin thinking about salvation as not something that happened to you in the past, but something that happens and is happening and will happen. Come on, saints. When the devil throws his very best at you, and let's just for argument's sake say, like Psalm 27 says, Though my father and mother forsake me, you will not, Lord. Let's suppose you're in that situation right now. You're still here, though, aren't you? He has delivered you in the past, and he will deliver you in the future. Maybe like David said in the Psalms, when his own son was sleeping with his wives on the roof of his palace, and his most trusted advisor had turned against him, my companion, my close friend, if it were an enemy, I could go hide from him. But it was you. We used to worship together. He said this in the song. But you know what? God delivered him before that, delivered him during that, and delivered him after that. What will God not deliver you from? You think at the end of that ordeal, David put a great deal of faith in his diplomacy? You think he put a great deal of faith in his familial relationship? What is my son? Where do you think all of David's trust ended up? The king of the universe. This is why we love him the way that we do. Watch this. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. Death and despair, death sentences, teach us not to rely on ourselves but on God. He delivers and continues to deliver. Set your hope on him. And somebody asked me, it was actually Debbie, she was here helping Jennifer with the preschool. And I came in and I told them, I felt like my knees were knocking together as I was running forward. I am scared to death that we're not going to have the registration and stuff that we need. And that is still not going to stop me from doing exactly what God has called us to do. Say, so, well, brother, that's not faith. No, faith is doing what God tells you to do. You understand? Faith is not just some warm, fuzzy experience floating in the air that comes and goes. Faith is when you have heard from God and you stand on it, even if it takes a resurrection from the dead for it to occur. If I wasn't scared, how much faith would it really take? You don't hear these messages from pulpits very often because whoever stands up here is supposed to be God's man of power for the hour. The right haircut, the right suit, the right car, and don't you want to be just like him? But there is a catch. You can't because it is not real. It's an image on a TV screen, kind of like a glowing idol. It's not the pastor's fault. It's whoever has lifted him's fault. What we have is an opportunity. We have an opportunity to watch men carry dry bones around. To see that not every 
promise is answered like Burger King. Order at this window. Pick up at the next. And yet when the people of God remain faithful, we learn to rely on Him and He comes through for us. How awesome is that? I love the missionaries. When you go spend time with them and hang out with them, they get to know you and they're not so worried about impressing you or making sure your church supports or continues to support or any of those things. They start to tell you how difficult their lives actually are, right? How many failures, how many uh, gut-wrenching betrayals and heartbreaks and all of those things. But that is not what a missionary shares his first time in the church, is it? What do they tell you? Every miracle that's ever happened. Every great thing. How many souls were saved? And brother, here are the souls, here are the souls, here are the souls. Why is it that we feel like we need to do that? Is your faith going to rest upon your accomplishments? Or is it going to rest upon God? I want to tell you, it is those mountain and valley experiences that teach you the difference between charisma and the charismata. That teach you the difference between the anointing of God and just somebody's sheer personal strength. Who in here is strong? I know some of you are. The good news is it just takes that much more difficulty to get you in a place where you're only relying on God. I want our hope to be set on him. But I think we better get back to Joseph's bones. Go with me to Exodus 13. In Exodus 13, let's pick up in 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not... By the way, this is 400 years from our opening scripture. How about that? 400 years. Isn't that so easy to say? How many pages did you have to flip to go through 400 years? I mean... From the end of Genesis to the middle of Exodus, what is that, two or three turns in your Bible? How easy do you think those 400 years were? They were frolicking and playing in the Palm Springs type environment, right? What were they doing? Slaves and mistreated. And what the Bible calls a furnace of affliction. How about that? We have a way of skipping over all of the difficulties and just looking at the end result. I don't think that it works that way in the kingdom. I think we need to acknowledge like the apostles did. It is through many trials, toils, and tribulations that we enter the kingdom of God, and it's still working. For the joy set before us, we endure whatever God has called us to endure, and we see the promises fulfilled, if not in this life, in the resurrection. In uh, 17, 13, 17, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though it was shorter. There's a whole message right there. Why didn't God take the shortest road? God is not interested in what is easy for you. He's interested in what will bring him glory. Now, it may seem at times like he's trying to crush you, but watch why he didn't take the shortest road here. For God said if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt armed for battle. Did you hear that? They're armed for battle. And where is God taking them? Away from the battle. When you're born again, you are armed for battle. You have all the power of the universe 
and it's inside of you. He is inside of you. It's only used, I mean, it's at your disposal, and it's only used at God's discretion. But just like these Israelites that are coming out, we often don't know how to engage our enemy. We don't know how to deal with the trials of life. So God took them on a long road where they could endure an appropriate trial at an appropriate time. Come on, saints. An appropriate trial at an appropriate time. Now, I'm not stupid. Well, I might be stupid, but I'm not naive. I don't believe that you are going to wake up tomorrow and go, Praise God for this trial because it's obviously the appropriate time. <laughs> it never feels like an appropriate time or it wouldn't be a trial. But the God we serve has armed you for battle and he is marching you along a road so that you will only meet the resistance that he intends for you to meet. But what does that mean about the resistance you are meeting? He intended for you to because it is training. It is so that you might learn to rely upon him and not upon yourself. It's so that you might set your hope upon him and not upon yourself. It's so that you are not tempted to take a census of your own abilities when it has got nothing to do with your ability. One of the hardest things working with people that have not been in ministry very long is they cannot train themselves not to look to their checkbook, look to their credit, look to, look to, look to, instead of look to. My provision has nothing to do with ravens. God just uses ravens sometimes. It's got nothing to do with the stream. He just sometimes uses streams. But he also can use a widow in Zarephath because he is the source of all provision, not anything else. It cannot rely upon a man. It cannot rely upon flesh. So let me ask you, why are your dreams? Why are your hopes? Why are those hurts broken in you? Is it because you hope to accomplish? Is it because you would hope to make things right? Put you in situations where you can't, so that he can. And that's what makes him God. Get out of the cosmic genie mindset. God does not owe you anything. He is not a formula. He's not a man that you should reason with him. And yet he is a God-man that has laid his hand upon you and upon God and is making peace. So what is your relationship with him? To do exactly what he has told you to do. No matter what the cost. No matter what the consequence. Not if it's convenient. Not if it fits in your schedule. The last two weeks, have you said, I will do this and so? I'm going to do it. Reiterated it more than once. And then when it came down to do it, you didn't? Relationships with your friends that way? You say, I'm going to be there at 7. Do they know that means 10, 11 o'clock? Or they might not come at all? Is your relationship with your work that way? Can you be counted on to do the things that you say you'll do? So, well, that's all different. God knows my heart. What does the fruit on your tree say? Isn't that worth looking at? I think it is. Is the problem with God or is the problem with us? The answer to that question is always it's with us. So what do we do? Maybe we need to fall on our face, say, I'm sorry, Lord, that the relationship with my cousin is not going well. I'm sorry. I'm going to give up in that area and ask that you'll move and I will do anything that you tell me to do. And then wait to see what he tells you. 
Maybe the ministry that you believe you have that you're not seeing right now. Maybe you need to recognize it's not God's fault. You encountered resistance. Maybe you did well, maybe you didn't do well. But it is God's calling to bring about in your life. Look what they did when they left Egypt. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the sons of Israel swear an oath. He said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up with you from this place. Doesn't that sound like an easy thing to say? God will surely come to your aid. Anybody ever told you that? Like, man, my kid is, is sick, and we got no health insurance and no money. I don't know what to do. Don't worry, brother. God will come to your aid. You ever been there? Yeah. Okay, good. I'm not the only one that's been there. Yeah. God will come to your aid. You need a car. You got no gas. You don't know how to get to work. Don't worry. God will come to your aid. My kids are still alive. I've still gotten to work. God did come to my aid. But I want you to hear this. It was 400 years from the time he said God will come to your aid wow. till the time Moses showed up and brought him out. Yeah. 400 years. Is it because God wasn't able to save him sooner? In fact, God announced it to Abraham ahead of time. It would be 400 years. So why? Because it was for the refining of the people and for the glory of God. This gave God a chance to judge all ten national deities of Egypt. And he says it in the 12th chapter, that I'll bring judgment on the gods of Egypt when I bring out my people. Why has God delayed so long in his second coming? Well, maybe it's for the same reason. Maybe it refines his people and allows him to bring judgment on the gods of this world. But what if the church pray every day? Come get us, come get us rapture. We put bumper stickers on our car about it. Because we have no tolerance. We have no tolerance for having to carry around bones saying, I believe you, Lord. It doesn't look like it's going to happen, but I believe you. Instead, what we say is as long as in a Billy Mays infomercial-like fashion, this is solved by the end of this service, I will believe you. Mm. That's not intuitive. You know, you expect an infant to need to be fed every two hours. You don't expect an adult to be fed every two hours. That's just me. The king of the universe might be testing on that. How about this? Hebrews 11.22 calls this action faith. It doesn't just call it faith. It says, when Joseph was dying, he spoke of the upcoming departure. How is carrying bones a statement of faith? Well, because at the end of himself, the end of his very life, what was he speaking of? He was speaking of an exodus or a departure. Get this. That kind of departure says, I will one day leave the situation I'm in and enter into what God has promised. Carrying bones around is a symbol that says, it may be this way today in my marriage, but as long as I have to endure it, I will endure it until I enter into that place where God has said it will be restored. I may have to endure this relationship with my child as it is today, but I've reached the end of myself and there will be an exodus, a departure, where God brings me into the place where he has said. I'm not talking about leaving the earth, saints. I'm talking about reaching the end of your abilities and acknowledging God must going to do something really special here. 
faith in a departure from our present circumstances and the entering into the promise that God had said. They carried those bones around. You know, Joshua 24, 32 said that there was a grave in Shechem. Now, it's funny, Joseph's daddy also, you never hear about his bones except one time in Genesis. But, but Jacob, the man in Israel, said, wow, I'm going to go down to Egypt and I'm going to die. And God said, don't worry. Joseph, your own son, will close your eyes. And his response to all of that was, carry my bones out. Not just Joseph, Jacob. And Jacob had bought a grave earlier in his life, right in the dead smack center of Israel, the land that God said they would inherit. It was at a place called Shechem. And after Joshua's conquest of the promised land, they set Jacob and Joseph's bones in a grave in Shechem. Why? Because all of those promises of God are still, to this day, waiting to be fulfilled that those men would rise from the dead, rule and reign the earth from Israel. Why are they the fathers of our faith? Because in many cases, everything they did served us and they never got to see the fulfillment. But they will see it with us, provided you continue in your faith. Saints, even if you die and the promises made to you were unfulfilled, God is able to raise the dead to fulfill a promise. Turn to 2 Kings 13. I only got a couple more scriptures for you, but I think they get better and better. And I'm being a little bit deceptive in when I say that we only have two more scriptures, because one of them is an entire chapter. Second Kings 13. There's two prophets in Israel that are probably more famous than any other prophets. When you do things like call fire from the skies, make axe heads float, uh, you get people's attention. When you shut up the heavens so that it doesn't rain, and then call down fire from the very same heavens, and then speak and it rains, you get people's attention. Well, there are two prophets, Elijah and Elisha. And Elijah did seven major miracles in his life. Seven that were uh, definable, seven that you can find in the scripture that uh, are easily pointed to as miracles. Elisha, his servant, who took his place after him like a protege, received a double portion of the spirit that was upon his master. Twice seven is fourteen, any way that you count. Even where I'm from. I was educated in Louisiana, and our math was a little fuzzy at times, especially during the political season when it came to taxes. Mm -hmm. But twice seven is 14. There was a real problem with this, because when Elisha died, there are only 13 miracles that occurred during his lifetime. Looks like God's promises failed. That can be so rough. Have you never prayed and didn't see the result you had hoped to see? Come on, you have to be living in a vacuum. <laughs> Things just didn't turn out the way that you thought. Who would have ever guessed the story would finish this way? In 13, look, I didn't go there. I told you I would go there. Here we go. In 1320, Elijah died and was buried. Now, Moabite raiders used to enter the country every spring. Once, while some Israelites were burying a man, suddenly they saw a band of raiders. 
So they threw the man's body into Elisha's tomb. When the body touched Elijah's bones, the man came to life and stood up on his feet. How hard did Elisha work for that miracle? I mean, he sweated. He prayed. He earnestly sought God and fasted, didn't he? No, probably not. Huh? Why? He's dead. Been dead some time. He's been dead long enough that there is no Elijah left except bones. So the promise made to him of a double portion, a double mantle. Did it depend upon Elijah or did it depend upon God? And even if it took a resurrection from touching bones. I heard so many crazy word of faith teachings about power stored in bones. No, power's not stored in bones. That's absurd. It's absurd. You know where there's power stored? In trusting God. Trusting God. They threw a dead body on the man's bones. What? Can you imagine the surprise of the young man? <laughs> he comes to, right? He comes to, he stands up. Man, where am I? You know? And he's in the middle of a Moabite raid. What's he going to do now? He might got killed again right then. I don't know. <laughs> you ever thought about that? Yeah. How long did Lazarus live? I don't know. These were events so that we might learn that God's power is not dependent upon us. All right, let's get to the meat of the message. Let's turn to Ezekiel. We'll be in Ezekiel 37. What do sticks and bones have to do with each other? I mean, why would you call the message sticks and bones? Well, we got the bones part. All of us are carrying around brittle, old, dead-looking promises in our lives because a long time has passed since your hope for this first started. We'll get to the sticks in a minute. Ezekiel 37, starting with verse 1. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of the valley. It is an amazing thing that God does, that his Spirit will lead you to the middle of the valley. People don't die and get buried on mountaintops very often. There's a few. You also don't grow crops or dig wells on mountaintops, right? You don't find life-giving water on the top of a mountain. Where do you dig all of those things? Where do you grow your crops? Where do you do all of them? It's in the middle of the valley. The Lord set him in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. Now, in what we've been speaking of, what are bones? Bones are those promises, those dreams, those covenants that don't look like they can be fulfilled because we've reached the end of human strength. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry, been dead a long time. You ever wonder why in the Gospel of John he includes things like the man had been that way 38 years when Jesus healed him. Mm-hmm. I mean, why not 39? Why not 37? Why don't we list the ages of everyone else? He's trying to show you it doesn't matter how long you've been the way that you are. When you hear the word of the Lord on a subject and you stand on it, your life will change. Your eyes can be opened. Your legs can work again. 
Your marriage can be fixed. Your children can be healed. All of those things. He's trying to show you that there is hope no matter how long it's been this way. When people are really hurt and they're arguing, one of the things that you hear is, but you always... It doesn't matter how long it's been or how dry the bones are. One word from the king of the universe, and it can change. I've got somebody in my life I like to encourage with the words, what a difference a day can make. It's your whole outlook can change in a single day. Right? Mm-hmm. He asked me, son of man, can these bones live? I said, oh, sovereign Lord, you alone know. Now, I don't want to take issue with Ezekiel. I mean, this guy laid on his side for 180 days and cooked his food over horrible things. He shaved his head with a sword. And as far as I can tell, he's one of the toughest human beings that, that the gospel ever produced. So I don't want to take issue with him. But we're talking about a man who stands in the very council room of God. And God asked him, can these bones live? And his answer is, only you alone know. Now, either, either this is supremely humble, and he's saying, they can, but only if you want, or he really doesn't know. And I don't know which is the case, but I sure I'm glad he wrote down his experiences for us, because I'm here to tell you it doesn't matter how dry the bones are, they can live. Then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of Yahweh. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you, and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you, and make flesh come upon you, and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you, and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Now the command is not prophesy to the bones, and they become alive. This is what the charismatic world, me included, would love. We would love for everything to be, you got a problem? Come to the altar, we'll cast it out. Right? Uh, there is no sinful nature, there's just something that could be cast out. We would love for the problem to be, come down here, you got a problem, we'll pray for you, and all problems are fixed right there. We'd like it to be instantaneous. Not even with Ezekiel standing in the middle of the valley of dry bones was it instantaneous. He first had to speak that life would come in, breath would come in. It is a process. And one step of obedience led to another step of obedience, and it led to another step of obedience until we reached a result. And we're going to read about that in just a second. But let me ask you something. What happens if he prophesies breath and then refuses to do the rest? What happens if he prophesies breath and tendons but refuses to do the rest? If he stops anywhere short of full obedience, you have a pretty gnarly bunch of saints, don't you? Some zombie-looking guys walking around. (laughs) Serious nastiness. Sometimes we charge God with error as if He hasn't fulfilled His promise to us when the truth is we have not taken every step of obedience we were supposed to take. We cry for a week, cry for two weeks, and then we're mad we didn't get the results that we wanted. The men that we were taught to admire sought him for decades decades and just because you can change the radio channel or the TV with a click I mean I remember when you actually had to get up off the couch and walk to the TV (laughs) channel does not mean that your circumstances will change that way 
I've often said I wish when people got saved they got downloaded with social graces as well. Because it doesn't always work that way. It is a little by little process like Israel took the promised land. You kill one giant nation at a time. But you keep working until you get it all. Where are you in that process? So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise. A rattling sound. And bones came together. Bone to bone. I looked and tendons and flesh appeared on them and skin covered them. But there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe into these slain. These what? Slain. Slain. That doesn't sound like they just died of old age, does it? Most of our dreams don't just die of old age. Somebody, something kills them. What did John tell us that the enemy wants to do? Kill, steal, and destroy and since he didn't appear to you physically and stick a knife in you, how is he going to kill you, steal from you, and destroy you? He's going to lie to you about the Word of God. He's going to lie to you about your potential. He's going to lie to you about God's nature and yours. Think back to the garden. God, first words to mankind. First words, period. You are free to eat from every tree in the garden except the tree of the middle. First, but first words, you are free to eat. You know what the devil's first words to the woman were? Very first. Y'all know? Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? God's first words are you are free to eat. The devil's first words, first words are, did God really say you must not eat from any tree? Both are kind of true. The truth is, you eat from every tree except that one. The other one, did God really say that you can't eat from any tree? It's true that you cannot eat from any tree. There is one that you can't eat from. You see how he does that? He changes the perspective. God's nature was to make man free. The devil's nature, nature was to present God as enslaving man. What did you do with your dream? I know more people that set out in ministry and ended up wounded, hurt, and needing ministry. And I know exactly how it happened. They say sheep don't have teeth, but they can't. I'm telling you. Prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to it, This is what the sovereign Lord says. Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe into these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them. Then they came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. I want you to begin to speak to those areas in your life. Remind them. Remind yourself of what God's Word says about it. You struggle every day with the thought that you're ugly. You need to read and see what the Scripture says about you, how you're fearfully and wonderfully made. If you feel incompetent, you need to know that God himself has made you competent. And Paul wrote it in his letter to the Corinthians. If you find yourself feeling weak, you need to know that the God of peace has promised to crush Satan under your very feet in Romans 16:20, And on and on 
and on until your situation begins to change. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They said, Our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, This is what the sovereign Lord says. O my people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. When you hear the word of the Lord, you don't just resurrect in the end. You don't just resurrect spiritually at being born again. In any situation that you have no hope in, hearing the word of the Lord can give you hope in that and bring it right out of the grave. Do you think Lazarus was born again? Think he believed Jesus? Think he was led by Jesus? Then we're going to call him born again. You can argue about dispensations all you want. Not with me. Go argue with someone else. We're going to call him born again. Think he'll resurrect at the last day? Yeah. But when he found himself in a grave before the last day and after being saved, and he heard the word of the Lord, he came out of the grave, didn't he? And he took off his grave clothes. And it was a great testimony. Do you think Lazarus had found the end of his strength? No. I bet he did find the end of his strength when he was in a grave. Well, yeah. Sickness overcame him and he died. <clears throat> These are the chances in which God has uh, all the glory. And we need to quit refusing, kicking and screaming to get there. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you will be my people and will know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves and bring you up from them, I will put my spirit in you and you will live. And I will settle you in your own land. By the way, this is called Aliyah. When a Jew goes home, it's called Aliyah. Do you think that most Jews think Aliyah is going to occur at the resurrection or before? There would be no Jews in Israel right now if they thought Aliyah was occurring at the resurrection. So what do you think they think this means? They've been condemned to situations around the globe, in Germany, in Spain, everywhere around the globe, that are like a grave. But when God speaks to them, they come to life again and they come home. A time is coming and has now come when you will hear the word of the Son of Man and come out of your grave. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken. I have done it, declares the Lord. I have one more thing to share with you. These were all about bones. Sticks is important. I promised to preach to you about sticks and bones. The sticks part of this is how the bones come to life. Okay? We've been talking about dreams and visions that are brittle, that you've been carrying around, a hope, a promise that you must cling to. In, you've all seen children before. It'd be all right. <laughs> that you must cling to in order to see God bring to life. Now I want you to hear how this happens to Israel. Have you heard the term divide and? Yeah. Julius Caesar made it famous. A lot of other people made it famous. Nobody really knows who quoted it. Divide and conquer. If God has spoken to Israel and said, you will inherit this land, great things will happen to you here, you'll rule it forever, uh, the whole nations will stream to it, the enemy heard that, and he said, let's divide Israel so that we can conquer it. And a civil war broke out in Israel, and the northern kingdom split from the southern kingdom. Is this news to y'all? Y'all know this? Uh, I know we have children that have walked in, but I don't want to lose you for this point because it's important. There was a civil war in Israel. The enemy sought to divide Israel. This meant that when the northern kingdom was attacked, what might the southern kingdom not do? Help. Right? In fact, since the northern kingdom broke away, when they were attacked by somebody, the southern kingdom might go, <laughs> knew it was coming. They deserved it. 
They should have been following David's descendants and they're not. Right? What would happen to the southern kingdom when they were attacked by the northern? Uh, what would the northern kingdom do? Just stand by and watch, right? And then, God forbid, sometimes they would even go to war against each other. Why do you think in some of your close personal relationships the devil has sought to divide? The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, take a stick of wood and write on it, belonging to praise to Judah and the Israelites associated with him. And take another stick of wood and write on it Ephraim's stick, belonging to Joseph and all the house of Israel associated with him. Join them together into one stick so that they will become one in your hand. Now, these are two sticks. One of the problems, though, is if I have a stick here, and I have a stick here, and I want to show you that there are two sticks and they've become one, and I put them like this, from a distance, you probably can't even see there's two sticks, can you? How could I show you, even from a distance, a sign that the whole world could see? Something that I could lift up, that the two houses had become one house. There were two sticks, but they had been joined together. You think maybe I could join them like that? Hmm? Then everybody could see that Joseph and Judah were now being joined together. And how would I cause this kind of union so that there could be a resurrection of the dead? How on earth could I do this? Well, if you've read Corinthians 15, 28, you already know. But let's go ahead and read Ezekiel. When your countrymen ask you, won't you tell us what you mean by this? Say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I'm going to take the stick of Joseph which is in Ephraim's hand, and the Israelite tribes associated with him and join it to Judah's stick, making them into a single stick of wood, and hold them so that they become one in my hand. Hold before their eyes the two sticks you have written on and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I will take the Israelites out of the nations where they have gone. I will gather them from all around, and I will bring them into their own land. I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. There there will be one king over all of them, and they will never again be two nations or be divided into two kingdoms. Most of the divisions that the devil brings into our lives come because there is more than one ruler in our lives. If your obedience is solely to Jesus, and your life is lost in him, and you are dead with him, crucified with him, carrying around your cross. How offended can you be? Somebody call you a drunk, would that offend you? It really shouldn't, because you're dead, right? But to the extent that self rules in our life, alongside Jesus, then we have something to protect, we have something to defend. The thing that brings unity is the cross of Jesus that unites us under a single king. We all have something in common. We've all been forgiven and are objects of mercy. This compels us to have mercy with one another. It's like having a weapon of righteousness in your right hand and in your left. It demolishes arguments. It demolishes strongholds so that there can be unity under one king. Paul said in Corinthians 15, 28 that God was bringing all things in heaven and on earth under one head. Jesus, the Christ. He must reign until he puts all of his enemies under his feet, then the end will come, he says. They will no longer defile themselves with their idols 
or vile images or with any other of their offenses. What was it that had separated them from one king? An idol. Offenses and idols. And the offenses become idols, right? If you closed your eyes and thought, is there a single person on the planet right now that you would not be happy to see? More than one? <laughs> what will bring us as one people is when we're truly submerged in the cross of Jesus. This is when we can really have hope that dry bones will rise because we have no idols. I will save them from all their sinful backsliding. Good thing it was only them that backslided, right? And I will cleanse them, for they will be my people, and I will be their God. My servant David will be king over them, and they will have one shepherd. They will follow my laws and be careful to keep my decrees. They will live in the land I gave to my servant Jacob, the land where your fathers live. You know what else? It's the land where Jacob's bones and Joseph's bones are buried as a testament to the fact God would do this. They and their children and their children's children will live there forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant. I will establish them and increase their numbers, and I will put my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place will be with them and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Then the nations will know that I, the Lord, make Israel holy when my sanctuary is among them forever. When God makes Israel holy is when Israel has reached the end of her strength, and it could only be God that does it. When God shows himself to be holy in you is when he doesn't have to share his glory with you because <coughs> it's clear to everyone that it was him and only him that did it. I appeal to you, saints, do whatever it takes to be united with your brothers and sisters. As much as it is possible upon your part, live at peace with all men. Do whatever it takes and speak life into your dry bones. We will see a resurrection from the dead. I promise that. Not just in this life, but in the life to come. Y'all stand to your feet. going to dismiss with a song uh, so as these guys get ready you just kind of keep an atmosphere of prayer our church has never been really big on altar calls and we haven't for a lot of reasons I've seen good things happen at altars but I've seen an awful lot of people come pray do something and leave the same way they walked in because they thought their service to God was completed at an altar. I would rather you think of an altar as a starting line. I'd rather you think of it as a place the marathon begins. As we worship, you are free to come to our altars. I just want to sing and leave with the Spirit ministering to us about what he spoke to us today. Amen. Amen.
another church service. Friday night, a leadership meeting. Sunday, a women's meeting. Today is a men's meeting. We love you. Yeah, lots of meetings. We love you very much. You're welcome to hang out. You're welcome to go eat, do all of those things. Thank you for being here with us today. And uh, it's good to hear words. It's a whole lot better to apply. Find a way to apply that word this week. Amen? Amen. Yeah. All right. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.